The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Listen to the highly anticipated 100th episode of Tank and Jay Valentine's R&B Money Podcast with artist Chris Brown. Even working with you from Carrie Hilson, Adonis. Mm-hmm. Back in the day, I was 15, 14 doing that album. So like I said, I was in school like, yeah. okay, this is how you do it. This is how you make a song. There's a verse, a pre-chorus, and then a hook. I didn't know none of that. You learned I, that over a summer, bro. That's what I, it felt like. That's what it felt like. Listen to R&B Money on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith, host of the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and I answer your phone calls and respond to your tweets. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions and straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. All that and more. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. Welcome to the latest edition of 100, the Ed Gordon Podcast. Today, a conversation with producer, author, and podcast host, Van Lathan Jr. Lathan rose to prominence while a producer on the television show TMZ. He gained national attention when he took on rapper Kanye West during an appearance on the show. During a rant, West suggested, among other things, that slavery was a choice for black people. Lathan challenged West on the spot, and the incident went viral on social media. Do you feel that I'm feeling, do do you feel that I'm being free and I'm thinking free? Yes. I actually don't think you're thinking anything. I think what you're doing right now is actually the absence of thought. And the reason why I feel like that, because Kanye, you're entitled to your opinion. You're entitled to believe whatever you want, but there is fact and real world, real life consequence behind everything that you just said. And while you are making music and being an artist and living the life that you've earned by being a genius, the rest of us in society have to deal with these threats to our lives. We have to deal with the marginalization that has come from the 400 years of slavery that you said for our people was a choice. Lathan was thrust into the spotlight and his voice became an important one in the media. 
since the infamous tangle with Kanye. Among many things, Lathan has written a book, hosted a number of podcasts, and produced a number of projects, including the short film Two Distant Strangers, about a black graphic artist caught in a time loop where he tries to get home, but repeatedly is killed by a white police officer. Oh, and did I mention, the film won an Oscar. Nice shirt, though, man. Everything all right here, fellas? Yes, sir. Everything is just fine. It's all right, you had your arrest. Come on. You had your arrest. Who is When you were young, dreaming about whatever it was you dreamt about becoming, did you ever think that they were going to have on the front end of your name Academy Award winner? You know what? Not really. (laughs) And the reason was because everyone kept telling me that they wouldn't have it on there. Mm -hmm. It's something we do sometimes to kids is we we want to make them successes. So we we try to uh, we want to make them successes. So we try to subtract the ways that they can fail. Mm -hmm. Because the higher your goals, like the more you can fail. But if you stay in school, you're gonna get that doctor. You're gonna get that 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 uh, that bachelor's. You're gonna get that. So sometimes when I would tell people that I wanted to come out here and make movies, they would say, "You know, the plan is hiring." Right. So, and, and by the way, they, those people didn't mean me any harm. They just want to make good, right. good people. And everybody that they ever heard saying that they wanted to be a guitar player or something like that, sometimes it didn't work out. So. Um, but I'm glad I didn't listen to him because I still love him. Did, did have. you have lofty dreams as a kid, though? You know, coming out of Louisiana, you know, like you say, people temper your dreams and say, look, man, that's cool. But, you know, you're going to be in the swamps. You're going to be in the factory. You're going to be depending on where you are. Yeah. Yeah. I, de- I definitely had lofty dreams and people definitely tried to temper them, but they couldn't, man, because in between video soul and video vibrations, <laughs> <laughs> see this black guy on TV, you know, giving up the news. You know what I mean? And in my mind, I would be like, look, that's the only place I see that really. Mm-hmm. And I would be like, if he can get on TV, I can get on TV too. Mm-hmm. So, you know what I mean? I just think I had too many examples and I mean that to honor you, of course, but I appreciate um, it. I would, I would say that I had, uh, I had too many examples of, um, of people that uh that I could aspire to be like, and it wasn't just people that were on television, you know. Whenever you would uh, I would get into my books and I would I would read about Megar Evers and I would read about Marcus Garvey, um, you know, even taking it all the way back, George Washington Carver, these black people that did all these amazing things. I just didn't see any reason why we should stop that, and a lot of the people uh, in my generation in Baton Rouge were the same way. You mentioned your generation, the the generation that you've come up with and, and behind you. Um, I think about you as a great example. You know, if you think about the idea of what technology has done and allowed us to propel people, the platforms that people had uh, before that were gatekeeper platforms. Sure. You had to be let into the room to get to the table. And now you have the ability to, kind of create a platform. Uh, How do you look at that? Because I try to not be the old dude, get off my lawn, right? 
and I see it two ways. I appreciate the popularity one can get quickly and design an audience for yourself. But being popular is not always being profound. And sometimes I think we're missing the idea that there is a difference. Sure. Um, well, there's a reason why you tell people to get off your lawn is because you don't want them fucking up your grass. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so let's remember that all of the old people that we, that, that we sat around, that uh, even that it's interesting when people say, tell people to get off your lawn. Well, people didn't want you to mess up their, their grass. They were protecting something that they had built value in. And the same old guys that would say, get off my lawn were the ones out there watering the lawn. Mm-hmm. And I think that is an interesting sort of dynamic that exists now. Is like, there are certain people that can now be famous for messing up your grass. That's why they're famous. They're famous for coming on your lawn and just messing up your grass. And there are people who in this industry that are disseminating information. There are people who are translating culture. They're still doing their best to uh, water and nurture and build, right? Um, Because when you are disseminating information and you are translating culture, uh, there's responsibility in that, at least I believe. And then there are people who now realize that everybody wants to see you fuck up somebody's grass. Mm -hmm. And so they're doing that. And while I'm happy that the internet has allowed us to have such uh, connectivity where people don't need gatekeepers, there also is something that's being lost. And let's be honest about that. And it's like, there's something that's being lost. And what's being lost is so many people are shouting at the same time that what they're saying is becoming way less important than how they're saying it. Um, and we're not talking about the information anymore. We're not getting to the heart of the issues anymore. It's a lot of style over substance. And that was harder to do uh, in years past because you have to put in so many years um, being qualified at something that by the time you were just doing it for eyeballs, you were normally years and years and years and years and years and years and years, and years into a career where you had to be in somebody's uh, newsroom where you had to be in somebody's new station, you had to do all of this stuff. And while the democratization of this stuff is, is a great thing, um, it's also precarious. And it's, it's, it's something that we should keep our eyes on. We should pay attention to who we're listening to and why we're listening to them. And we should also realize we can't listen to everybody, man. Yeah. We just, you, just, you just can't. You, you can't listen to everybody. You, you just you, you can't do it. I appreciate your perspective on that because you and I have talked off air about yeah. a lot of this before. And what what really shocks me is, you know, I tease about being the old guy now, but I appreciate that I'm the old guy now um, because there is some some wisdom that comes with time if you're smart, because there yeah. are a lot of old fools out here, too. Right. Um, okay. What I'm bothered by is I see a lot of people, my generation, who you know, continue to kind of fight that and they, they want to be accepted by a younger crowd and therefore they do some of the same things um, that lose that wisdom, perspective, gravitas that you, you talk about. Do you, do you see that? Of course, because I think uh, youth has always been power. You, there's always been power in youth, but there's also been, um, there's also been power in being the OG. There's been power in listening to your elders. There's been power in, um, you know, 
understanding where you come from and what it is that you come from. The thing that a lot of people knew before first was the was the interaction with Kanye West. And the only reason why that happened is because I wasn't uh, taught to respect my elders. I was taught to worship them. Mm-hmm. You know, they had survived. You know what I mean? Like they had uh, gone through something. They had been through something. My elders is one thing. My ancestors is something totally different. And so I was triggered by what he said. I think now is the first time that uh, I'm starting to see on a mass level, on a mass level. It's all people have always wanted to stay young. That's nothing new about right. that. Right. But an addiction to youth culture, that's a little bit different. Um, and I think that has to do with a little bit of social media. The interesting thing about the pandemic was that uh, you got to see how old everybody was. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> was, that's right. Like, that's right. Like you got to see, you got to see. Um, and this is in, not in any way mean to diss anybody, but I remember I saw Will, and Will has a head full of gray hair, and Kevin Hart, and all these guys, they're they're gray, like we're in our forties, right? Um, and and so. In order to stay viable, which viability has never been more important than it is now, ever. It's there's never been a time now where you it's less fashionable to ride off into the sunset now than it has ever been. Yeah. Ever. It used to be you had a career in music, you were hot for as long as you were hot, you did whatever after music, and you will pop up at the Juneteenth concert and we would have and we would have a good a good time with you. Mm-hmm. Now because you're never supposed to not be hot. You got to keep it going on Instagram. You got to keep it going on Twitter. We got guys, rappers saying ridiculous things, doing ridiculous things to keep it going because they're still grabbing at something. I say all that to say that um, wisdom and, 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 and growing old gracefully and growing culturally old gracefully mm-hmm. and becoming a good OG, a good uncle, uh, it's more important now than it's ever been because somebody's got to tell these, especially these young men, man, I'm talking to these young men and I sound like the old guy in the room because when, when we was killing in Baton Rouge and I'm from a violent place, it seemed like it was a reason that they was killing. It was still senseless. Don't get me wrong. It was senseless and it was stupid and it needed to be rooted out. There's a culture of, of, of death and, um, and violence now that's like, that's difficult for me to wrap my arms around. I've been doing this show. So I think it's just important for, for I know that's a long-winded answer. I have a tendency to be that. But I, I think it's important more than any time now for us to embrace our elders and embrace, you know, the respect that we have for them and the people that have been around for a while. Yeah, it's funny you say that because each generation sees appeal of the onion. Of right? course. So my yeah. parents looked at my generation and thought, God, you you know, you, you you have no understanding of life and you don't see it as valuable and the like. And now I look to your point at somebody, I'm 60, I'll be 62 in August. I look at somebody 22 and I think, <laughs> shit, what is going on? Right? What is yeah. going on? And to your point about, you know, holding on to youth, I can't tell you how many people advise me not to let this happen. And uh-huh. I was like, hell, you can do the math. As long as I've been around, you can do the math, right? So, you know, you have to have a sense of understanding what's important to you. I get maybe if you're a movie star. Okay. And by the way, I'm not tripping on anybody. No, I I agree. 
If you want yeah. to dye it jet black and it's blacker than it was, <laughs> right, just right, know right. you're not fooling us. That's my right. whole thing. We yeah. know what the deal is. But I, yeah. I agree with you. You know, do what makes you you. Right. Yeah. Do and I'm, I'm all for that. Yeah. Let me let me jump into the book because I thought it was really interesting, man. Uh, Tales from the Trenches of Transformation, Fat, Crazy, and Tired. And I, I admire that not only that you took the title, but you didn't leave it superficially that you could have said, hey, man, I, you know, I lost weight and, you know, I had this battle all my life. And, but you really talked about the environment that makes you all three of those things. Yeah. And there's so many black men and you can substitute one of those words for another word. But particularly black men, there are environmental things that surround us culturally and literally environmentally that make us all of these things that society looks at us too often cross-eyed and never allow for the idea that we weren't born this way. Uh, there's a reason that we are who we are. Right, right, right. And and I think that's the first, for me at least, it was the... Uh, it was the first step in sort of forgiving myself. Um, my father, who's passed on now, um, one time I was going to my room and he's like, yo, you got to clean this room up. He's like, I like, look, I let you go a little bit thinking that one day you were going to clean the room up, but obviously <laughs> you just love filth. Yeah. He's like, I clean this room up. And then he says to me, he says, I know why you don't want to do this right now. Like because you look at this and you think, how possibly could this room ever be clean again? There's stuff everywhere. There's blah, 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 blah. But he's like, this guy going there and you got to pick up one thing. And you're going to see after you pick up one thing, after you pick up five things, after you pick up 10 things, it's going to start to change. And when it, goes, when it starts to change, it's going to want to be finished. And I think a lot of times when we take a look at our dysfunction or we take a look at the things that made us, sometimes we think, God wow, there's no way that we could ever clean this room. It's like, there's too much going on. There's this intergenerational trauma. You know what I mean? There's poverty, there's violence, there's drug addiction. And then in order to cope with all of this stuff, uh, there's abuse of food, there's abuse of our women. There's sometimes our women abusing themselves or us. There's, there's domestic, there's all of these things, right? And we still manage to look happy and have this amazing cultural expression and all of that, despite of uh, despite it all. But the first thing we have to remember is that these traps were set and are being sprung in a very purposeful way. And even if they're not being, even if there's not somebody sitting around right now pushing buttons, there's a system that needs our dysfunction to keep the wheel turning. And so for me, when I stepped back and I looked at where I'm from in South Louisiana, when I looked at some of the ways we we the, we the ways we hate each other, some of the ways we love each other. Um, I was able to let go of why can't you stop eating, or why are you depressed? You know what I mean? Or why why do you feel like you just want to lash out sometimes? And I was able to kind of say, okay, now how do you reconstruct your life to divorce yourself of some of those things as much as you can? And that's kind of what the book is about at its core. How do we take that? beyond the individual, because part of what, and I, I want to thank you for being a part of a book that I did a couple of years ago, where I put together a group of about 40 people, influencers, um, you know, some of the usual suspects and, and others who I thought had something to say. 
and did a virtual conversation. And one of the unique things that I find in our community is there is a sense of this self-hatred that we've not been able to let go of. And there is a uniqueness in Black folks who can take a negative. We say we're turning it into a positive. Yet I wonder as I take a step back to see that what we're doing is normalizing Absolutely. Rather than making it positive, we're just simply normalizing it. Uh, how sure. do we how do we broaden that and, and try to correct that? And I don't know. Because it's. Uh, it's. It's almost a pro evolutionary trait to get used to things. Mm-hmm. That's what your body does. Like your body gets used to stuff so much. So it's so much so much so to the point to where. If you live by a lake for 10,000 years, your great, 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 great grandkids will have wet feet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, or at least like, you know, if you're an animal, like we adapt, like getting used to things um, is like the human way. It's, it's, I don't know how. And the sad thing about this dysfunction that we're talking about is we're used to it mm-hmm. and we've had to get used to it in order to survive. And um, give an example. So I worked at TMZ for for a number of years. I'm sure everybody knows that. And I remember one time, sometimes I just throw tweets out there. I just see what people are going to say. I just see what people are going to say. And I said, I said, hey, in my whole life, I never sold drugs. I wasn't making a value judgment. I was just saying I never sold drugs. I had a dad that if the drug stuff gets mentioned, it's not a good situation for you. It's not going to happen. It's like, I'll lose you to my hands before I lose you to the street. And a familiar refrain of all of that was, hey, but you still worked at TMZ. You still did something vile. I'm not about to in any way defend some of the journalism that goes on at TMZ or some of the things that they've had to say about the community at TMZ. Not at all. But what struck me about that was that that's comparable to a lot of people to being a drug dealer. Now, the reason why there are so many luminaries, be they rappers, stars, or whatever, that have to talk about their life in the street and the life in the streets that they've led is because, and the reason why we don't hold them responsible for, uh, for that stuff forever, and the reason why we're so forgiving about that is because we understand that. Like some of the nicest guys I ever knew. Some of my closest men in my family that I love so much were some of the worst criminals and most violent people that you would ever want to meet. They're they're Santa Santa Claus and teddy bears to me and demons and devils to you, right? Mm -hmm. But I get that. I understand that. I'm used to the fact that that's the way that that is. You know what I'm saying? When it comes to TMZ or some of the stuff that they see, it's like, I would never do that. But if it came down to it, selling drugs, not that bad of a thing. I mean, that's to pregnant ladies. That's the people in the community. That's to all of that stuff. We don't judge those guys because we know those guys because we've been forced to kind of come to terms with some of the uh, some of the ways that society shits on us. So we know that sometimes we can't play it by the book to get to where mm-hmm. we're going. What we can't do though is continue to normalize those situations in perpetuity. We just can't. We have to be understanding and we have to be compassionate to people in situations. Uh, that uh, that neg- that necessitate them doing certain things that 
we might not no- normally see them do. We have to because it's a part of the things in our community. But at least within our own community, we have to set some standards. We 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 do. Like we we have to set some standards. I can't stop saying the N-word. The reason why I can't stop saying the N-word is because my grandfather used to say that to me. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love that little, that little, that little nigga so handsome. <laughs> Look at that little nigga. I love him. But we should stop. We know that we should. Like we should stop. We're not doing like we like I I understand it, but it only confuses things. And so I guess an answer to your question is how do we set new community standards? Right. I don't know. And I think it's going to take brave leadership. Because okay. in order to do that, somebody's got to come out and admit that there is true dysfunction here. We don't yeah. always like to do that publicly. And I understand why, because everyone sees us as yeah, this right. right? But at some level, any real change often came from leadership who was willing to hold that mirror up and say, this is why we have to change. I think about your dad. And I think, I think about one of the first conversations that you and I had before you finished the book. I don't even know if you started it. I remember thinking when we hung up uh, how I appreciated just the reverence you spoke or I could hear when you were telling me something about your dad. I don't even really fully remember what it was, but I could just hear it in the way you talked about him. Um, And again, we're missing so much of that for young black men, that real sense of some of those men who were willing to tell us at, at, at all fronts, we're not having that. Yeah. We're not having that. We've lost a lot of that. Um, was part of the reason you you wrote the book in the way you did, making it so personal. You know, anyone who's seen you talk about where you were, I think at your height, 365, 370 pounds. Um, but there is that sense of what needs to be looked at first, because you could have resigned yourself. And in the book, you say, you know, I was the fat friend. You could have yeah. resigned yourself to always being that. Sure, of course. Um, was there someone who said to you, dude, we can't do this? Um, there were many people, but until I, there were many people who said that, but until I decided how I was going to live my mm-hmm. life, it didn't matter. It right? didn't matter. Yeah. Yeah. There were many people who said it, right? Many. I remember one time my boy Gino was like, why don't you just try just not supersizing it at this point? Just try that. I was like, what? He was like, we go to McDonald's. And this is so funny. He goes, Van, you spend $11 at McDonald's. Mm-hmm. He's like, remember, this is like the late 90s, early 2000s. You can get out of McDonald's full meal, five bucks. He's like, bro, just don't supersize it. Give yourself a chance. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And whenever somebody would say that, I would just get mad. Because I'm like, they don't tell me. They tell me how to, how, to, how to live my life. But the reality is, you know, um, it took me understanding how I wanted to live and like who I wanted to be. Um, but also it took me understanding that like I was using food, uh, using whatever to kind of fill some holes in myself and my family, to be honest with you, like the people in my family, like we have a, a tendency to do that. There's, you know, we come from a family of addictions, and different crutches. So um, if you're going to attempt to break the cycle, you got to kind of uh, interrogate like why it's like that. 
how do you change the mindset of it? it it's I think whether it's being overweight or whatever your issue is, I think it's easier to change the physical than the mental. Oh, you're absolutely right. Right. So what did you have to do? And it may still be a journey to get out of the fat friend mentality, which can hold one down, frankly, because you right. always see yourself as not good enough. I'm, I'm always the second guy. I'm the wingman. I'm, you know, uh, how, how do you get out of that? Well, the first thing I had to remember is that. Well, the first thing, to be honest with you, I had to really remember is that I'm the man. <laughs> I mean, I'll be honest with you, like, I'm yeah. the man. I go to a place, uh, my life isn't a mirror of anybody else's. I'm not fat because somebody is skinny. Um, they're not skinny because I'm fat. Like, I'm not, I'm not a, how about I say this? I'm not like a, I'm not the antithesis of normal. Mm-hmm. I'm not something other than. That's with anything. Black is not something other than. We black. Right. And not Why by happenstance, not- which a lot yeah. of people say. I right. just happen to be black. No, Negro. No, There's a reason no. you're black. Yeah, yeah. We black. Okay? <laughs> like We black. All right? We not black because they white. We not black. No, right. we black. That matters. Okay? Um, And so... Once I started to understand that, like, you know, I'm not living at cross purposes with what is normal or functional, I started to ask myself, well, what is it that you want? I'm competitive. So when I'm on the basketball court, I like to compete. I like to compete. What's the best way for you to compete? Not at 370 pounds. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? There's all kinds of things that I viewed about myself. And by the way, there are people everywhere who are Bigger people who are happy, who are healthy, okay? Because healthy is is not an across-the-board thing. Health is uh, a very individual thing. And, you know, there are certain conditions and certain ways that you can be healthy. Um, That being bigger is not going to be great for you. But then there are other people who are perfectly healthy at all different types of sizes, right? Um, So I I had to define these things for myself and stop worrying about whether or not I was the fat friend or stop worrying about whether or not people got mad at me when I got on a bus or a plane and stopped living my life uh, as a reaction to what I thought was normal. I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to do it for me. And the moment that like I did that, I became mentally in shape because you need to get mentally fit. And the moment that you start your journey and you know you're working out and you know you're eating right, you feel different. Mm-hmm. Like you feel like different. And then you see you've lost, but you might be 310 pounds, but you see you've, you, if you get to 305, you're like, it's working. But a lot of times we don't give ourselves that chance because we're doing it for the wrong reasons, but you really have to find peace within yourself because the journey's not going to happen overnight. I was going to ask this later, but you said peace within yourself. And I, I, I think it was, I don't know if it was the Kimmel interview you were on Jimmy Kimmel for the book. And then you were on the daily show with Trevor Noah. And one of them asked you, you know, what do you want to do next? Uh, and you said, you know, it may be corny, but I just want to find some peace. Yeah. I want peace in my life. Yeah. And so many of us come to that wisdom later in life, not as young as you have found that. I mean, it took me, <laughs> you know, a <laughs> lot of years to understand that really should be first. Yeah. You know, all this other stuff, 
the crib and the cars and whatever else you desire, if you Uh don't have peace, it won't really matter. Uh, What was the epiphany for you for the peace? It's the death of my father. Mm -hmm. So my father passed away and I went into bed with Kalika and, um, you know, the phone rings and it's early. It's like 6 a.m. Pacific. So I, whatever, whatever that is. Really? Not, um, but then there's another call. They call her. Mm. She sleeps. She doesn't answer. The next call came to my phone again. I knew he was dead. Mm. I knew it. And so um, I pick up the phone. It's my sister. She's hysterical. And uh, I already knew. Like, I already knew. She's like, daddy, daddy died. He's gone, blah, blah, blah. So we talk. I get off the phone. I sit there, blah, blah, blah. It wasn't that moment. It wasn't until months after. Months after. So the next day, I got to fly to Baton Rouge. I go to Baton Rouge. I post on Instagram that my father passed away. And so, boom, I get all of these messages. Everybody, oh, man, from all over the place. You know, of course, people want to reach out their concern. And then there's this weird thing that happens when something like that goes down that, like, you're just going because you got a lot of stuff to do. Right. Number one, like, from, from that point on, there were just tasks. I had to get a plane ticket on short notice. I had to get an Airbnb to stay home for two weeks on short notice. I had to go to his crib, get all of this stuff, make sure who's going to get what. That You're just doing stuff. You're doing stuff. You're doing stuff. And your friends are always there. They're, people are hovering around you wherever you go. I get back to LA and I'm going through all of the messages that I got on Instagram and I get a message from a woman. Oh, I see a message from a woman, should I say. And the woman says, the message from her says, hey, you don't know me, but I just took your dad to the hospital. It's bad. Call me. I didn't see this this entire time. Right. Um, so he was with someone. And they, it was early in the morning. She took him to the hospital, dropped him off there. Uh, and he died at the hospital. He had congestive heart failure. So yeah, his heart is he went to cardiac arrest. He died. I thought to myself, for everything that he wanted to do in his life, for everything that he was doing in his life, there was chaos always. There was the next problem to solve. Um, there was the next person to... To, to, to grab up, to set right. He never got to a point to where it was coming in and coming out, to where it was homeostasis. He almost made it. They had a house. My, my dad, my mom got a, got a big house and had a house in Zachary, and he had his life. He had his horses. We had a barn. There was a pond. Uh, there were a bunch of dogs, and he was, he'd come home, and he would just be there. Look at what I did. Look at what I built, but he couldn't keep it. Mm-hmm. Um, there's just too much going on. 
And so for me, I started to think, when it's all said and done, how do I want my life to have been lived, right? I want to be able to be curious, to explore. I want to be able to find new places, meet new people, build a strong connection with my woman and my children, uh, to have a certainty and an understanding of my place in this world and in this universe and in this culture. And what's the number one component for all of those things? Something that my father never had, peace. He was a warrior. He liked to fight. And there was always something to fight for. And at the end, when he died, nobody was around him. He was by himself. It haunts me. He was alone. There was a, a woman that I had never met. I have nothing against her. She was one of his girlfriends. Right. He liked to do. A woman that I had never met telling me that my father died. And nurses that he never met, like in a room where he is by himself. You know? Um, me and my mother and my father and my uh my mother, my father, and my sister hadn't all been in the same room since 2002. Mm-hmm. It's just chaos everywhere. It's confusion. It's hurt feelings. Nobody knows what the truth is. Nobody knows who's telling the truth. Nobody knows who means. It's just all of this. I just don't want any of that. I don't want none of that. And the way to do that is to confront some hard truths about myself, try to be a better person, um, to, to set personal standards about how I'm going to be dealt with and thought of. And also, Ed is going to be turning down some money. Yeah. It's going to mean turning down some things. It's going to mean it's going to mean not being maybe some of the things. Maybe you have one or two less cars. You know, I still want to power a catamaran. I want a <laughs> boat that I take out to the marina yeah. and cruise around. I'm still going to get that. But, uh, but I'm not saying you can't have incredible um, wealth and success, which we all want, and and not have peace. But I feel like I have to define it for myself. Uh, but I just don't want the chaos that seems to be um, ever present in in my family's life back home. I don't, and I want to help them achieve it too. So, yeah, we moved on to Van's popular podcast, Higher Learning. He and co-host Rachel Lindsay take on Black culture, politics, and sports. The way you all have been able to cover a wide swath of things. Uh, and, you know, uh, do it sometimes irreverently, uh, sometimes yeah. seriously, um, which is what I think is unique about y- your generation and younger. You know, we were taught, particularly on the news side, you, you got to stay right here. You know, yeah. there's a serious nature that you and there's there's a time for that. Yeah. But what you all have been able to do brilliantly is not take everything so seriously. Uh, You know, I still don't understand why every other uh, conversation has to be rating the rappers. But hey, man, I'm old. So I'm like Negroes. Okay, (laughs) got it. Top 10. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Give me a sense of what the podcast is for you, man. Well, you know what I really you know what the first thing I realized when I uh, when I was watching guys like you, brothers like. uh, Tavis and yeah, I, I gotta give Brian Gumble his credit and mm-hmm. and and is that like you guys would be in situations and I would be like, how is he not laughing? <laughs> right. 
Right. Like, I'd be like, how is he not laughing? Especially you, you were so, you were like a statesman almost. <laughs> like, how is he not laughing? And, and it's like, I'm glad that, that media changed a little bit because even when I was at TMZ and these people would say this ridiculous shit, I'd be like, are y'all serious? It's like, oh, come on. <laughs> um, <clears throat> and so I reflect that in the podcast. There are places, don't get me wrong, to where if you see me, we are discussing something. It's going to be serious. I'm going to make sure that we that we stay on it. In the podcast, it's such long form. Right. It's not as structured. There are no segments, really. You're going to get more of a, uh, of a 360 degree of who I am. But as you know, there are things that I am deadly serious about. Deadly serious about the future and the past, the future and the past of our people. I'm deadly serious about the American dysfunction that we're seeing, the threats on democracy that we're seeing right now, the 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 culture of of um, of white nationalism and separatist ideas that are that are festering and growing in our country as we speak. Um, I'm serious about all of that stuff, but some of this other stuff, Edge, you can't be serious about it. It's just too stupid. Right. It's so much stupid shit going on right now. It's, it's, it's like, it's, it's, it's just really stupid. You can't be serious about a versus battle where people, <laughs> you, you know what I mean? Where, mm-hmm. where the, the technology not working. Sometimes you got to let yourself breathe a little bit. <laughs> I'll be honest with you. I, like, I want to make sure that we take breaks because I remember I used to hear about things, right? I used to hear about Diallo and Wima and all those things that, were, that had happened in New York used to hear about these different things that were happening with the police and stuff everywhere. Um, I remember the first thing I ever actually saw in LA were two things in LA, the, the Latasha Harlins and then of course, Rodney King, but we didn't see that every day. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now I see it every day. And so the goofiness sometimes with me or, or, or some of that other stuff, it's really a, a coping mechanism and it always has been. And I need to do it less. My girl is over there in the other room right now, probably going, Hey, Stop making a joke out of everything. Mm-hmm. But uh, for me, it's a coping mechanism for, for a lot of that stuff. And I think it's important that sometimes when you're dealing with those topics and they're as weighty as what they are, and you're not delivering news in a news form um, to let people have a little bit of a break. And so that that's that's kind of, that would be the, the most reason. It's to give myself a break too. Look, man. I tell you, I, Ed, Ed, I want to tell you something before you go. I just can't. I know I've said this to you so many times, man, and we uh, we have to volley back and forth to to get on the same page to get the podcast done. But I just hope, I really do hope, man. I sincerely hope that you know, and I know that you do, but y'all never do. You know what I mean? So I'm just going to keep saying it. I hope you know how much you meant to an entire generation and continue to mean to an entire generation of kids that looked up on the screen and saw you. And that's where we got our news from. Like, that's where we got our, our, just you and Donnie Simpson and Sherry and Rachel from Korean Rhythms, who I thought was the most beautiful woman <laughs> I've ever seen in my life. Yeah. Um, you know, just, just that, that was, that was us. It wasn't no other us. That was us. Yeah. That was us, man. Yeah, like, no, I, I appreciate it. As I've said to you, man, I, I don't take it for granted. And, and, you know, you try to be humble in it. But so many people um, have come to all of us, frankly, and said, look, I can't tell you what you meant to us. And I will tell you that we took it seriously. Yeah, I mean, we understood that we were representing not just ourselves and our family, 
but the extended family, the larger family, black folk. And, you know, I, I in particular took it very seriously, which is why I was that serious news dude. I was playing that serious news. Dude. <laughs> I got you. <laughs> but listen, man, all the best to you. You know how I feel about you, brother. And I, I, I want you uh, to have continued success and look forward to uh, your peace and whatever else comes along with that, man. Thank you so much, man. It's a pleasure to know you. It's a pleasure to be on the podcast, brother. Another big thanks to Van. Remember his book, Fat, Crazy, and Tired, Tales from the Trenches of Transformation, is available now. 100 is produced by Ed Gordon Media and distributed by iHeartMedia. Carol Johnson Green and Cherie Weldon are our bookers. Our editor is Lance Patton. Gerald Albright composed and performed our theme. Please join me on Twitter and Instagram at Ed L. Gordon and on Facebook at Ed Gordon Media.